0: Hey there, I'm your host, Jennifer, and if you are a special education teacher who loves the field but is feeling overwhelmed with all that goes into being a special educator, then this is the podcast for you. This podcast is such a labor of love for me because I get to merge my 28 years of experience of being a special educator with my love for teaching adults. I provide you with timely and applicable information that you can immediately put into action within your own classroom, department, or program. These weekly mini doses of professional development are perfect for the busy teacher who just need a little boost of motivation to stay the course in order to survive and thrive in this profession. If this is your first time here, welcome. I am so glad that you found me. Be sure and hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Today's guest is Ange Anderson, and you will soon hear that she is not from the United States. Ange is recording with us all the way from the UK and Wales, and we are going to chat about the importance of play for children with autism and neurodiversities. I've had a couple of episodes already about play in the special education classroom, and I find it a very fascinating topic that I know as a whole, special educators don't do enough of. So I'm encouraging you to really listen to the science behind it today and picture how it can be implemented within your own department. Well, hey there, Ange. Welcome to the SPAD Prep Academy podcast. Uh,
1: hi, uh, lovely to be here. Thank you.
0: Well, before we get started, would you introduce yourself and share about your journey within the field of special education?
1: Um, yes, I certainly can. Um, well, I I, um, I was a head of a, a special school for ten years, and uh, we had some students there with um, who were neurodivergent with um, learning differences ranging from severe, complex, profound, and multiple and um, autism, um, emotional behavioural difficulties and so on. Um, And so um, whilst at that school, I introduced over 25 different therapeutic and technological innovations and we were um, an outstanding school for um, Wales, which is the country that um, I'm from. And so um, it's just about sharing good practice. So we shared good practice with other um, schools. And then I finished and um, I I inspect and support other schools. And I also um, support families. And um, I have um, a website, a YouTube channel um, where obviously there's free um, videos and guidance for um, parents and professionals. are unsure about whether or not to try um, different therapies so some of those therapies will be actually free to start some may cost a bit so um, the channel and the website tells you about those kind of things and then obviously I've written books um, about therapeutic and technological interventions that will tell you even more about those particular therapies and um, innovations um, so that um, And and in those books, there's loads of free resources as well that people can
0: copy and use. Well, I feel like this is an interview that I was always meant to have because I can't tell you how excited I am to dive into a conversation with you. I actually have written grants for virtual reality in my school. And most recently, we were given funds to implement three action-based learning labs into my school. So I fully support the work that you do. Today we're going to talk about the importance of play for children who are autistic or neurodivergent. I chose this topic out of your many areas of expertise because I felt it would be the lowest hanging fruit for my audience, which means any special education teacher, regardless of the lack of grants or funding, can get behind this and implement this into their programs easily. And I fully support this topic and I feel that there are not enough people talking about it. So since it sounds like you are the expert and actually have a voice that others are listening to, why do you see play as so important for neurodivergent children? Um, Well,
1: as we know, neurodivergence covers a host of learning differences from Down syndrome through to autism. And many of our neurodivergent students responded best to routine and structure. Um teach stations, for instance, timetables, no and next cards. However, suddenly we had more students attending school who had PDA, which is patho- pathological demand avoidance, and they couldn't cope with structure and routine. And I needed, or we needed, to find a way for them to learn that they didn't feel threatened by. And the answer. Was learning through play now we'd already trained a couple of staff as play therapists through PTUK and I'm sure there are many other um, authorities across the world that train in, in play therapy and you have to have a degree before you can train in that um, but they and they delivered individual play therapy sessions that might include sound play um, art therapy, small world toys, And then we also introduced a play therapy that didn't require degree status. And that's available online if any of your listeners wish to look into it. It's called VIP, which is Venture into Play. And that's a cost effective form of play therapy. It's very reasonable. Um, And our teaching assistants could deliver it. So a search engine will find that for you. Um, VIP was successful in delivering both individual play sessions, skills, as well as small group sessions. And Lego therapy was another successful small group therapy session. And once again, trained was staff, with staff were trained to deliver it. And actually, Lego therapy is one of our most most asked for um, therapy from mainstream schools to um, deliver training to them. So we had those already active in our school and students could be drawn out of class to receive those interventions. However, these students with pathological demand avoidance needed a full-time play approach to learning. No other way worked. They could not cope in a structured classroom at all. So if we were to look at the development of a child, we see why play is hugely important for neurodivergent children. Um, Because that's their level of development, where their schemas are at, and so on. And I go into detail about that in my book on learning through play for children with PMLD and complex needs.
0: Well, that all sounds so interesting. I know that, um, you know, that we get a lot of pushback. I don't know if you do in in your country, but in our country, we get a lot of pushback when it comes to play in the classroom because a lot of administrators or a lot of you know, politicians or, or people who are making the decision for our classrooms feel that classes or schools need to be used for education and don't feel that play is there should be an, an integral part, you know, they feel like play should be done at home. But I disagree. And I can obviously tell that you do too. So can you tell us more about DIR that you used in school? Yes, I
1: certainly can. I, I had researched DIR, which is Developmental Individuals Relationships is what it stands for. And um, it's DIR floor time it's known as. And I felt that this could be the answer for those students. And a couple of our staff volunteered to go on the training for school-based DIR because there's actually a school-based DIR. Now, you can have DIR at home and you can have DIR in school. So we introduced it into a specific class and we set up a class for these specific students and we introduced it into there and the results were absolutely amazing i mean these were students that were damaging um, other students and damaging the classroom and just could not could not settle in into any kind of structure whatsoever and they would be interested in perhaps for all we knew, a butterfly that was outside the window. We didn't know what it was. And they needed that kind of play approach to learning. So it sounds like a cop-out where staff just let students play, but, oh, it's so much more than that. It requires a lot of planning because the students still have to have an IEP, an individual education plan, but these individual education plans have to be delivered through play, instigated by the students, So that they don't feel that they're being dictated to so that they remain in control of that situation. And and that's what they find difficult, you see. So it was quite magical watching children who had been extremely destructive in a structured class suddenly blossom because they were studying the life cycle of a butterfly, which is what they may have been climbing over chairs to watch outside, whilst what was happening in the classroom held no interest to them whatsoever because the butterfly had caught their attention. So creating an environment where the student can be successful is the answer. The old adage, if a child can't learn the way we teach, then we need to teach the way they learn, is is really the secret to that. So for the majority of the students, they were able to eventually return to a structured class. Some students remained at the cognitive level of a play approach to learning, and other new students gradually joined them in the class. So I'd say... Yeah, extremely successful DIR floor time. And like I say, it's not just available um, as a school-based approach. It's also available as a parent approach. And if you just go online and and um, you know use a search engine for DIR floor time, it will give you all training programs that either school staff can go in or parents can go on. If parents want to take the upper hand, and get into it before their child is even ready for school. They can do that, and they will find it life-changing, I guarantee Do you know how
0: long those trainings are?
1: Um, It depends, and and like I say, it's it's very individualized, and um, it requires, as to a lot of of things, um, a lot of input, um, because it is about um, learning as a parent as well how to play with your child, because quite often we assume that children who are neurodivergent can't play. Um, so it, it's it, it's a training in how to play with students who are neurodivergent as well. But it's extremely successful.
0: That is very interesting. I, I definitely need to get on there. I have just taken a position as an instructional coach for all of the special education teachers in my district. So finding different ways to help them learn things is is right up my alley so I'll definitely look into that
1: well this was the one area that we could we could not solve I mean we had so many therapies and and they were working for students with all different kinds of of issues you know ADHD all kinds and all these other things we brought in um, neural feedback worked tremendously virtual reality worked tremendously but with the children who had pathological demand avoidance nothing was working except DIR.
0: We don't use that term pathological demand avoidance in the United States. We probably the one that's probably most closely related would be oppositional defiance disorder and so and we do you know see kids that are coming into our programs that have that label. So I think that that would be the closest comparison to to yours. Right. So there, there's a lot of other things that come into play with these kids. So can, do you recommend sensory profiles for children? And if so, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yes. Um, there's absolutely no use in creating an IBP, which is an individual behavior plan, when it's the environment that's causing the behavior. So we understand nowadays that certain sensory overloads for individuals can result in a negative response. It seems obvious if you, for instance, hear a baby crying continuously in a supermarket as you try to shop, that you could be forgiven for a wishing they would leave, b lose concentration on what you intended buying. C, have a headache, or D, even complain. But if you're a child in those circumstances, you might not have acquired the social skills needed to try and ignore that intrusion on your mind. And a behavioural approach may seem more apt for you. So when we're stressed, we don't perform at our optimum. Sometimes busy classrooms create this sensory overload. We have come a long way in our understanding of sensory overload, ear defenders, a common practice in many schools today. It makes sense, therefore, that every student entering school doesn't just have an assessment on their academic ability. We need a sensory profile on every child. It is this profile that will determine how they learn best and what we need to put in place in order for them to learn best. Individual sensory profiles... Um, If you look in Appendix 3 of of, uh, my book on play, um, you will see that it gives you um, the eco-psychologist Michael Cohen's 54 natural web-string self-evident senses and sensitivities, such as the radiation senses, which include a sense of colour, as well as a sense of moods, which can be attached to colour. The feeling senses, which include hearing, but also include the sense of proximity, which many students who are neurodivergent do not have. The chemical senses, which include smell and taste, but also appetites and the hormonal sense. The mental senses, which include the sense of pain, the sense of fear, the sense of time, the sense of mind and consciousness, etc. And then if you go into the resource section on page 120, there's a sensory profile template with some suggestions on it. And if you combine the two, You can write out a sensory profile for your child, individualised, that you can help your family and others to understand the needs of your child. So, for instance, there's an auditory section on there. You may decide to fill in that your child is easily distracted by background noises. And that may inform a teacher or a childminder or grandparents that your child would benefit from ear defenders or even from having AIT or FST training. Um, those are auditory training um, that some, some um, students who are neurodivergent, um, their um, auditory um, canal to brain it, it needs some, um, some fine tuning. Um, so if a child has a sensory impairment, they're hard of hearing or their vision impaired, that's a sensory impairment, then you probably have a support service visiting the school and this can be added to the profile. Sensory profiles must be completed, obviously, with parents' views. So in a sensory profile, you would record sensory-related behaviour and when it occurs, attention issues related to impaired sensory input, challenges with focus on emotional regulation as a result of their sensory needs, meltdowns that impair functionality and when and where they happen, and the antecedents. So next we need to ask why. Is it an unmet sensory need causing the behaviour? Is it, for instance, the reason the student throws chairs is because they need more proprioceptive input? Well, then we need to try strategies to see if they're effective. We need to keep records. We need working strategies added to that profile. And anything that's non-working, dismissed off the profile. And we need to monitor the effectiveness of the profile at home and in school. So you may put down the need for the use of specific sensory rooms for sensory play. And some schools have dark rooms to support the visual senses. Um, Some may have light rooms that may be used to deliver reflexology, tap pack, story massage. Some um, schools may have playrooms enabling a full body tactile stimulation. That's usually a soft room because no one wants to see a student with pent up sensory issues who is still working through, say, the trajectory play schema where they like to see how things move. Feeling the need to throw a chair in class because the school has provided no alternative to meet that particular sensory need. The student could have been given the opportunity to have a session of basketball first thing. And that would have stopped the need for throwing something in class. A student may form a maladaptive schema as a result of the schema not being properly directed. Because schemas become brain data that our students access. So they would access that, for instance, when they were told they're going to the dentist. They remember the last occasion. It may not be a nice thought, but it's their automatic thought. So we developed the use of um, play therapy, role play and virtual reality to help students move on from these maladaptive schemas. But it takes time and it takes repetition so that they can adapt to the new schema. And once the sensory needs are met, they can focus more and they can get into the right frame of mind to learn. So behaviours on the whole tell us that something's not working for a child. You could battle on with it, trying to get that student to comply with the way that you teach. You could mistakenly see it as a battle of wills, but you would be wasting important time that you cannot get back and you could inadvertently be sending that child into a meltdown. So we are in the 21st century and it's time we taught children in the way that they learn best and not expect them to learn in the way that we have always taught.
0: I totally agree with everything you said. I think sensory is so important just overall for for all children, but especially for those who are neurodivergent.
1: But essentially profile is the most important thing first off, because that will tell you what they need. And it's because, because these rooms are constantly in use, certainly in our school, constantly in use. They have to be used by the people who need them most, not as a sort of like some old-fashioned schools would be, right, we're timetabled, I'm going to use this room today. Well, actually, that's not really the right use of that room. You know, oh, this class is timetabled for this, every class gets a chance to do this and this. No, no, it has to be individualized. There has to be a sensory profile so the person who needs that gets it, not, not wasting time with somebody who doesn't actually need that and they need something else.
0: You know, mm-hmm. yes. In in the United States, we call it a sensory diet. Yes, and yes. It's the same thing. Yeah, just doing that profile and seeing exactly where the the needs are. So, totally understand that. Well, and when I retire in a few years, can I move to the UK and and support you in your work? <laughs> I feel like this is something that I could totally get behind. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show today to share your knowledge on this topic. Can you share with the listeners how they can find your books and connect with you on social media?
1: Yes. Um, If they go to angandersontherapeutic.co.uk, that's got um, access to YouTube channel, to um, all my social media and to the books. And then it's got the choice of where you might want to get the books from. So it hasn't got to be Amazon. There's several choices on there that people might prefer to, to um, link onto.
0: Okay, well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it was a little bit difficult for us to connect because of the, the time, time difference. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. I've really enjoyed it. And I, I've um, listened to many of your podcasts and I think it's a great show. So thank you very much for what you do.
0: Well, thank you. If you liked what you heard today and realized you have found your sped soulmate please subscribe and then head over to spedrepacademy.com slash podcast to check out the show notes and sign up to be notified each time a new episode airs go out and have an amazing day and i'll catch you on the next episode